Now we come to message three as a very simple subject title, The Preaching of the Gospel. And this may strike you, understandably, as quite a major turn in the light of the first two messages. But two matters here. One is, preaching the gospel is woven into Psalm 2. And that psalm's a revelation of Christ as the center of God's economy. And that particular psalm is very up-to-date for us. The light that is there in this psalm is shining, I believe, more and more into our being to guide us, to supply us, to enable us, to encourage us, to live an overcoming life in the midst of the chaos, the rebellion, and the lawlessness in our environment. So I'd like to read the verses from Psalm 2 and then point out something quite uh, surprising and even amazing, in a sense, from Revelation 22. So the verses from Psalm 2 are 2 and 10 through 12. So in verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers sit in council together against Jehovah and against his anointed. And we read before in verse 9 how the Lord will break them with an iron rod, shatter them like a potter's vessel. That will happen at the end of this age. But there's also in the Lord's heart the burden to announce the gospel to the people on the earth. There are only sinners here. Those that presently are in participating in the chaos living out the lawlessness. Yet this is still the age of grace. And the gospel of grace needs to be proclaimed as part of our overcoming life. Now verses 10 through 12, Now therefore, O kings, be prudent. Take the admonition, O judges of the earth. Serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way, for his anger may suddenly be kindled. Blessed are all those 
to take refuge in him. On the one hand, we have a clear speaking from God that a righteous judgment is coming. We're nearing the end of this age. But at the same time, the Lord's heart with tenderness, mercy, compassion, kindness, love, must become our heart in relation to ungodly, sinful people to be saved. And so the Lord speaks to the kings, be prudent, give serious thought to the situation. And the judges, those that have governmental authority on the earth, respect the admonition. There's an opportunity here for you to have a turn. Serve Jehovah with fear. There is the need among all ages in the United States But I think it's fair to say, especially to the younger ones, to have a proper, holy fear of God. And then rejoice. But surprisingly, to rejoice with trembling. There's rejoicing in salvation, but there's the trembling in the holy fear of the sovereign God. Then the appeal, we'll see this again when we go through the outline, kiss the son, respond to him with affection, with love, with faith. Respond to what has been infused into you by the God of glory. Otherwise, the anger will be manifested And the unbelievers will perish. But those who take refuge in Christ are blessed. Now, I'd like to connect this, as I indicated a few minutes ago, to a verse at the end of the book of Revelation and an enlightening footnote for which I'm very thankful. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who is thirsty, Come. Let him who wills, Take the water of life freely. Then before I say anything more, I'd like to read the note. uh, Note three on this verse. Please listen with care. And let's sense the spirit uh, within and behind this. The Spirit and the Bride on the one hand, 
desire that the Lord will come. And on the other hand, yearn that the thirsty sinner also will come to take the water of life for his satisfaction. When we have a sincere desire for the Lord's coming, we will also have an earnest concern for the sinner's salvation. Isn't this precious? This matches the spirit of the gospel in Psalm 2. Only God knows when this age will end. But I believe we can truly say and wisely say, surely the end is drawing near. And there's been a significant amount of feeling among believers in the midst of the pandemic. Is this an indicator of the end of the age? It may be. It may be a warning. Only the Lord knows. And when the Lord comes in a hidden way as the morning star, he will come for his bride. We're familiar with Revelation 19, 7 and 9. Rejoice and exalt. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife, his bride, has made herself ready. So if we are in the process, in reality, in actuality, of preparing the bride and becoming the bride, we will have this intense longing for our bridegroom to come. We will pray again and again, Lord, turn the age. Come back, Lord. So the Spirit and the bride are together. And in one voice they say, come. And anyone who hears should also echo this and say, come. But God did not stop here. There's still the heart toward the thirsty unbelievers. Let him who is thirsty come. Are there not thirsty people that you are aware of? Your neighbors, perhaps, family members, colleagues at work, fellow students, friends, my, my wife just recently, in the last few months, has had a burden to contact all of her classmates from her high school graduation in Kazakhstan. And the burden is for their salvation. And we should have this within us. We don't just generate it but it should be produced. And then let him who wills 
take the water of life freely. Then the last part of the note I read again. When we have a sincere desire for the Lord's coming, we also have an earnest concern for the sinner's salvation. Now we need to all be clear concerning a particular aspect of the truth related to the gospel. If we are in the age of grace and we preach the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace, and in particular, according to Matthew 24, 14, we should announce the gospel of the kingdom. And those who respond to this gospel and are infused with faith and believe into the Son of God and believe in their heart God raised him from the dead and confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. But at the end of this age, which will be the first three and a half Uh, The end of this age will be the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. Once Israel, the country, makes an agreement with the European leader, especially regarding rebuilding the temple, the last seven years, the 70th week, begins. About the middle, after three and a half years, the overcomers are raptured. And the Lord's parousia, his gradual return, begins. On the earth, there will be the great tribulation. And there will be believers who were not mature to be raptured, Yes, they may contact someone and share Christ with them. But in principle, preaching of the gospel of grace will be over. Instead, as we read in Revelation 14, as the tribulation is taking place and the beast The Antichrist demands worship and the false prophet, the other beast, directs worship. And those who do not worship will be killed. An angel is preaching the eternal gospel, not the gospel of grace or the kingdom. Fear God. Worship Him. So there will not be in the tribulation the preaching of the gospel of grace. This is one reason why the prepared bride composed of saints who have been produced as overcomers. This bride, the bride is yearning 
for the Lord to come. But she's one with the Lord in his person, in life, in nature, in his heart. So she also will have a heart toward the thirsty, unsaved people. And so I had the leading to give this lengthy opening word to help us see the connection between preaching the gospel and everything else revealed in Psalm 2. The rebellion of the nations, the countries, all the human groups, all the races against God, the lawlessness, the declaration concerning the king, the anointed one, the wonderful Christ who will inherit the entire earth. And we need to know and experience this Christ, but now we need to see the same Christ who eventually will judge with righteousness all the nations, all the people. He has the heart of proclaiming the gospel of grace of the kingdom for the unbelievers on the earth. And this should be part of our constitution. As you are hearing this, does anyone's name come to mind that who, at least humanly, is an important person to you? Your relationship, your feeling toward that person is important. Are there not a few relatives, friends, colleagues, whatever, that you just long to see them saved? You don't want them to perish. You don't want them to pass through the great tribulation and be lost. It's not too late for them. We should not be obsessed with our spiritual condition and whether or not we'll be overcomers and not have any room in our heart for these thirsty people I believe somewhere in the life study of John, Brother Lee is ministering on John chapter 4. But we all know the woman whom the Lord met at the well. She came to get physical water. He spoke to her about living water. And it was made known that she had had five husbands and was living with a man, not her husband. She was thirsty. In no way do we excuse sinful, lawless, rebellious behavior. But we need to understand something. Very often, people are sinning because they're thirsty. 
on the weekends. They are thirsty. They want to have something enjoyable, something satisfying. And as we read from Revelation twenty-two seventeen, there's a call to the thirsty. And among the thirsty, there are those who will not come. They will not respond to the call. But there are some who will respond once they hear the call. And they need to hear the call through us, the very ones who are exercised to be supplied to live an overcoming life in the midst of the chaos and lawlessness. Those who want to do God's will, consummate the age, fulfill the desire of God's heart. But I say again, there must be room in us to have genuine care for thirsty, unsaved, ungodly people. And now we can go through the outline. And I believe we can do so at a, at a brisk pace, we'll keep the time. And I'll emphasize certain points that seem to need a little more explanation. Okay, Roman 1. In applying Psalms 2-7 to the resurrection of Christ, Paul in Acts 13 was not preaching Christ as the only begotten Son, as the Gospel of John does. Rather, in Acts 13.33, Paul was preaching Christ as the firstborn Son of God for propagation. Now, we're not putting one aspect of the gospel preaching against the other. The point is, is to see the difference. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle John is emphasizing eternal life, being born of the Spirit, being born of God, to be children of God, to have eternal life. So we need to believe into the only begotten Son, John 3.15. We, we would never neglect this or minimize this. In John 3.16, known by untold millions of people, God really does love the human race. He gave his only begotten son that those who believe into him will have eternal life. But we are basing this conference on Psalm 2. And we saw in message 2 that according to verse 7, 
and Acts 13.33, the resurrection of Christ was his birth as the firstborn son. Therefore, we can say in the second part of Roman numeral 1, in Acts 13.33, Paul was preaching Christ as the firstborn son of God for propagation. Many dear brothers, brothers and sisters in Christianity, sincerely preach the gospel as they know it so that people will be saved from the lake of fire and have eternal life. They believe in heaven. The goal of their gospel preaching is to save people from eternal perdition and to assure their going to heaven. That way of preaching the gospel is separated from God's eternal economy to have many sons to produce a corporate God-man, the one new man, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. So we need to understand the significance of propagation. God wants more children to become sons. Christ wants more brothers. And among all of his brothers who are also the sons of God, Christ will have the preeminence as the firstborn son. We are announcing the gospel of the resurrected Christ, not so that the new believers will spend eternity in heaven, but that they may be born of God to become children of God and members of the family of God, of the household of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, and members of the organic body of Christ. We need to see the connection between our gospel preaching or gospel testifying the persons we're concerned about, and the propagation, the goal of propagation, to have many sons. Now, the subpoints develop this. A, as the only begotten Son, the Lord is the embodiment of the divine life. The Gospel of John emphasizes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that as the Son of God, he is the embodiment of the divine life. Amen. In 1 John 5, John wrote to his spiritual children, I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. He who has the Son has the life. 
God has given us eternal life. 1 John 5, 11. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has eternal life. Wonderful. John's aspect of the gospel. B, through resurrection, Christ became the firstborn Son of God as the life dispenser for the propagation of life. We need to see and internalize and be constituted with and able to speak both aspects. See, first, Christ was the only begotten Son as the embodiment of life. Now he is also, okay, not instead, now he is also the firstborn son for the propagation of life. And here I would like to make a comment on the propagation of life. At the end of Matthew, when the Lord commissioned the disciples to disciple the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, then to teach them to observe all that he had commanded. Then in Acts, we see the move of the ascended Christ as the Spirit through the apostles and the believers. This was a move, not a movement. Propagating the firstborn Son of God surely has as its goal a very significant numerical increase of the number of believers. If you have a married couple, they both came from large families in their heart. They want to have many children. And so, year after year, more are born to have such a precious family life. So we need to know the difference and live out the difference between a move of the Spirit under the direction of the ascended Christ and a movement. Acts 13, almost at the middle of the book of Acts. Paul is moving, but there's not a movement He is propagating the firstborn Son of God to produce many children of God, as he said to Corinth. You have many teachers, but not many fathers. I have begotten you through the gospel. So we need to be zealous, active, vital, energized in our gospel preaching as a move 
of the spirit in the body. But not again, as it has as it was in the past sometimes, a movement. D, through his becoming the firstborn son of God in resurrection, the divine life has been dispensed into all his believers to bring forth the propagation of the life that is embodied in him. So this shows the gospel as revealed in Psalm 2, verse 7, along with Acts 13, 33. Now in Roman numeral 2, we quote from two verses, also in Acts 13. Through this one, forgiveness of sins is announced to you. And in this one, everyone who believes is justified. If we consider these verses carefully with the Lord, I believe we will be impressed with something. The two words, this one. Through this one, forgiveness of sins takes place. In this one, a believer is justified. The reason I'm emphasizing this is twofold. First, I would mention it's possible, it's not wrong. But it's possible that some would simply preach forgiveness of sins as a thing apart from Christ. And some, especially those under Reformed theology who like to call themselves Calvinists, they rightfully emphasize Justification by grace through faith. To be justified by God means that he declares us righteous according to the standard of his righteousness. But we can never make ourselves righteous. So God has provided Christ as our righteousness. We believe into him and God is able to justify us. And then the second matter is the forgiveness is through a person. We're not here simply preaching doctrines or even truths in and of themselves. Forgiveness is through the crucified and resurrected Christ. When he was on earth, he had the authority to forgive sins. When we have this one, we have the forgiveness of sins. Now on our side, when we are announcing forgiveness of sins at the end of Luke, the disciples were commissioned to preach repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, we need to do this. But we should announce this through this one. This one is the center, is the channel, is the means, is the sphere. And then in this one, everyone who believes is justified. We need to be in this one by believing. We believe into him. We are in him. He is in us. Now being in him, we believe. And by believing, we are justified by God. Our ability to believe issues from this one in whom we are. He now the subpoints. To be forgiven of sins is on the negative side and is for our release from condemnation. What good news this is to be able to tell a thirsty woman like the Samaritan woman who's been married so many times living with a man, not her husband. In this one, your sins are forgiven. And when God forgives, he forgets. Even among all of us, we need a fresh assurance of God's forgiveness and the release from us releasing us from condemnation. Then uh, uh, next B, to be justified, is on the positive side and is for our reconciliation to God and our being accepted by Him. So now, like the prodigal son returning hungry. God did not feed him first. He had him clothed with the best robe that signifies Christ as our righteousness. And now we are wearing Christ. I'm wearing this robe and so are you. That is why we have access to God. See, in Acts 13, 38 and 39, Paul twice spoke of this one. This is the one who has been resurrected to be God's firstborn son, our Savior. And the many holy and faithful things, we're not covering that, but so many precious things, aspects of the all-inclusive Christ, are in this one. Two, through the one who is the firstborn son, the Savior, and the holy and faithful things, forgiveness of sins has been announced to us, and through this one, 
We are justified. I cannot overemphasize this one. Lord Jesus, in you I am forgiven. Dear Lord, in you I am righteous in the sight of God. In you, you are my righteousness. The Calvinists make a mistake, they say. God has given us some of Christ's righteousness, like depositing money in our bank account. No. 1 Corinthians one thirty, God gives us Christ as righteousness. The robe that we're wearing is Christ as our righteousness. We need to treasure this and always announce the person, this one. Three, the one by whom we are forgiven and justified is himself our forgiveness and justification. Brother Nee, in some of his central messages, emphasized the truth that God does not give us things. God gives us Christ, who is himself everything. Now we're saying, he is forgiveness. He is justification. We are in a person, and that person is forgiveness. We are in a person. This person is our justification. A, both forgiveness and justification are mercies from God to us. And these mercies are aspects of the resurrected Christ. B, Christ in his resurrection is our forgiveness and justification. This is what we need to announce to the nations, to the people, to the unsaved. I repeat, there are only ungodly sinners on the earth. We were all the same. Paul told us in 1 Timothy 2, God sent his son into the world to save sinners. This is part of Psalm 2, part of the outworking of God's economy. And we long to see people saved from the fury of God's wrath that will be coming. To be able to be born of God and enter the kingdom and grow in life and be built into the body. Surely we should have a fresh concern and burden. Okay, Romans 3 gives us a different perspective is to realize that human life and even human beings themselves, apart from God in Christ, are nothing. Everything they have and do 
is nothing. And David realized this when he wrote Psalm 39. Okay, Roman 3. Those to whom we announce the gospel of God concerning his Son need to realize that as fallen human beings, they are nothing and vanity. All of us should readily be able to testify this concerning ourselves. I can share with anyone, as I now share with you, apart from the all-inclusive Christ as the center of God's economy, I am nothing. My life is meaningless. I would go further and say, it's absurd. It's pointless. There's no reason, no purpose at all. We're just existing here and trying to avoid pain and have as much joy as possible. It's all vanity. And eventually, those who advance in their careers, they're ambitious, they become affluent, they attain this and that, sooner or later they will realize they are nothing and their whole life is vanity. It's the spirit, the convicting spirit, that will enlighten people. I don't suggest you walk up to someone in Starbucks and say, you are nothing, your life is vanity. But they need to see this. Now the subpoints. In this psalm, David was brought by the Lord to realize that he was nothing and vanity. He's the king. What it would be like if our president, the leaders of the Senate and the House of Representatives, the justices on the Supreme Court, and the leaders of so many other countries would kneel before the Lord and say, I have this position, but I'm nothing. And I have a sense of vanity within me. Here, this happened to me. I won the election. I was given this. It's all emptiness and vanity. If the king could realize this, we should pray that all kinds of people will realize this. Point one, a quotation. O Jehovah, cause me to know my end and the measure of my days, what it is. May I know how transient I am. Just Time is fleeting by. I wasn't here 120 years ago. And before long, I won't be here anymore. That's our life. Point two, another quotation. Behold, you have made my days as mere hand breaths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. 
Surely every man at his best is altogether vanity. So in the eyes of God, if someone receives a reward, you know, at the or an actor, or they did something, they get a medal, they get a reward, people applaud. God would say, this is your best. It's vanity. If you are in graduate school, uh, working on a PhD, please finish what you started. Write the best dissertation you can. Defend it when you are examined. Attend the graduation. Let them announce you as Dr. So-and-so. And place the hood and the garment on you. But deep within, well, even though it was necessary for you to do this, you realize in itself, this is meaningless. It's vanity. It's empty. Then we quote verse 11, the second part in point three. Surely every man is vanity. Everyone. An actor, a professional athlete, a billionaire. I'm just illustrating, okay? Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, how wealthy they are. Their vanity. What will they have eternally if they don't realize now their vanity? They're thirsty. They need a savior. Then four, we quote from Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So these nations and all the peoples who are opposing God and his anointed, the king, the center of God's economy, it's all vain. In the present news, what's going on in Portland, for instance, night after night, not only the proper protesting, the rioting, the destruction of things. Total vanity. This nation in which we live, there needs to be a conviction over the land. Everyone is vanity. All is vanity. B, the way to escape this vanity is to come back to God. And take God as everything, redemption, life, wealth, enjoyment, pleasure, and satisfaction, so that we may be used by God to fulfill his original purpose in creating us for the accomplishing of God's eternal economy. What a wonderful word. I ask again, do you not have a friend, a family member, a neighbor, someone with you on your work? 
You just long to see her or him make this marvelous transition from vanity to taking God as everything in Christ. And then living a life to fulfill God's purpose and accomplishing his economy. This is how we are overcoming in the midst of the chaos and lawlessness. We are living for God's purpose, for God's economy. C says, our realizing that we are nothing, that our condition is sinful, and that our situation is one of vanity, opens the way for Christ to crucify us and enter into us to replace us by living himself through us and causing us to live together with him in an organic union. This is based on Galatians 2.20. We know from Paul's word in Philippians 3 that he is a very cultured, highly intelligent, well-educated, almost fanatically religious person. He could say in the flesh, he had attained much. Then he saw the vision of Christ and he counted everything as dung. It's useless. I will count everything loss. I will experience, I will suffer the loss. Then I won't shed tears about it. It was all waste. It was vanity. What a mercy it is for the spirit that convicts us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's John 16. We'll do this twofold work of showing us the vanity, absurdity, the meaninglessness, the emptiness, the nothingness of our life and simultaneously unveils to us the wonderful Christ, this one, the anointed one, the King, the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who is coming to take possession of the whole earth. He is here to be our Savior, our Redeemer, our life. D, this is the divine concept of God according to the divine revelation of the New Testament. Now in the last section, we are focused explicitly on Psalm 2, verse 12. To take refuge in the Son is to believe into the Son, Christ, taking him as our refuge, protection, and hiding place. Recently, I've been, uh, to some degree, immersed in the Psalms. 
And I noticed how frequently a word like refuge is used. A refuge. A safe place. Even that's part of the culture now. I want to have a safe place where no one will say something that makes me feel bad. Well, there are no safe places in the world. There's no hiding place. But there is a refuge. And this refuge is a person. And he is our protection. And here I'm just speaking to you, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't you sense the need for protection? Those of you who are parents and grandparents, don't you have the sense, the feeling, that the children, the grandchildren need protection? I gently ask how many of us are praying in some living way this particular aspect of the prayer the Lord taught us in Matthew 6. Keep us from the evil one. Oh, to send someone to a public school in California? They need to be kept. And we need a hiding place. We shouldn't try to hide in ourselves. To just go deep within where no one can touch us. But the Lord sees everything. Then I complete the reading of point four. And to kiss the Son is to love the Son and thereby enjoy Him. This is what's offered in Psalm 2. You need a refuge, you need protection, you need a hiding place. But some arrogant, strong, muscular young man says, that's for wimps. That's for cowards. I never back down from a fight. I'll fight my way through. You can fight the demons, the principalities and powers, the authority of darkness. Can you fight the vanity, the emptiness, the meaninglessness. The Lord is merciful to you to cause you to realize I need protection. I need a refuge. I need a hiding place. And we can tell you, our dear friend, as we're sharing this with you, Apparently, we're open, and we are in a way, but we're also hiding. Christ is our hiding place, and here, what happens? We love him. We kiss him. We're in Song of Songs, begins and ends with a kiss. Chapter 1, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Chapter 8, The seeker is ready for rapture. She says, when I see you outside, that is out of the old creation in the flesh, I will kiss you. Kiss the sun. 
Don't be reluctant to pray this verse. Love him. Tell the Lord Jesus afresh, I love you. Lord, in my weaknesses, in my failures, in my shortcomings, I can still say, Lord Jesus, I love you. You kissed me. Now I would like to kiss you and enjoy you and live in you as my refuge. This is what the sovereign God is offering to all the people in the nations that are rebelling. It's not too late. You're thirsty. You're empty. Your life is vanity and meaninglessness. Meaningless. You can be saved to God in Christ. Have your sins forgiven. Be justified in this one. Kiss the Son. Have a refuge in Him. Love Him. Enjoy Him. And you do this not alone, you realize. I'm in the family of God. I'm in the household of God. I'm surrounded by people just like me who were saved from vanity, from rebellion, from chaos, who responded to the gospel concerning the resurrected Christ. We've all been regenerated We're all children of God. So when we say brothers and sisters, that's not a religious epithet. You really are my sisters. You really are my brothers. And although here I am, alone in a conference room, speaking this message to be recorded, or not one another's presence directly. But I'm your brother here. Nothing less, nothing more. Let's kiss the son. Love him and enjoy him. Now we finish reading. A, to believe in the Lord is to receive him. And to love the Lord is to enjoy him. We often speak of this, don't we? It needs to be real to us. Overcomers love and enjoy the Lord in him as their refuge in the midst of the chaos and lawlessness. B, the Gospel of John presents faith and love as the two requirements for us to participate in the Lord. Through faith, we receive the Lord. And through love, we enjoy the Lord whom we have received. Faith is for appreciating, substantiating, and receiving the unlimited riches of the triune God. Love is for experiencing, enjoying, and living out the immeasurably rich 
triune God. Faith is given to us by God. Don't try to believe. Simply receive the faith given by God that by it we may receive Christ, the embodiment of the triune God, and thereby enter into the triune God and be joined to him as one, having him as our life, life supply, and everything. Last point. Love issues out of such a wonderful faith and enables us to live out all the riches of the triune God in Christ with those who have believed into Christ with us that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit may have a glorious corporate expression. Now, a brief word of summary. Psalm 2, which is focused on Christ as the center of God's economy. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King. He is our Savior. He will come and inherit the earth. This wonderful person is the center of Psalm 2. But the environment on the earth is total corporate rebellion, opposition to God. Some would say there is no God. This is the ultimate opposition. There is no such being as God. Others know deep within there is God, but they will not obey. They don't care for his will. They're not interested in his purpose. They're part of the corporate rebellion, chaos, lawlessness. And Psalm 2 reveals Righteous judgment will be coming on all the nations, on all the peoples. But, not yet. There's still the time for the gospel to be announced all over the earth. The gospel concerning the all-inclusive Christ born in his resurrection to be the firstborn son of God. And he wants to be the one in whom we are born of God, in whom our sins are forgiven, in whom we are justified by believing, the one whom we can embrace, the one who is our safety, our security, our refuge, our hiding place. And now instead of opposing, 
clenching our fists and shaking at him. We open our hand to receive him and open our mouth to declare he is the Lord. So we end with his twofold realization. Judgment will soon be coming on the whole rebellious earth. But we who by the Lord's mercy are coming to know and experience the Christ revealed in Psalm 2. And he is our refuge. Let us hide in him. Let us live in him. Let us continually kiss the Son, love him, and enjoy him. Then as we are eagerly awaiting his coming, may we be able to have the heart toward unsaved people to receive the wonderful, all-inclusive Christ, who is our King, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior, our life, our life supply, our everything. And here, outwardly, we seem to be the same like everyone else in the midst of this situation. But inwardly and intrinsically, we're another species. We're God-men, regenerated, through the resurrection of Christ. And we are in the household of God, the family of God, corporately praying to him, worshiping him, enjoying him, serving him, and corporately carrying out little by little the will of God and fulfilling the desire of God's heart. This is the Christ Revealed in Psalm 2, this is the Christ we may know and experience. This is the Christ being wrought into our being so that on the earth, in the midst of this increased darkness, golden lampstands are shining and the body of Christ is being built up. The new, one new man is maturing and the bride is making herself ready. What a mercy, what a blessing that this Christ is real to us. What kindness in the heart of God that we could be saved from this present evil age and in the midst of the chaos in a corporate way Pursue the Son, honor God the Father, express our love, and yearn for his coming. We can say, come, and we can also say, thirsty ones, come and drink. Drink of the living water. So, brothers and sisters, this finishes my portion. 
I believe what was in me has flowed out. And now I just, allow me to say this, I just commit you to the Lord and to the Word. I just would encourage you, spend some time in Psalm 2, along with Acts 13. Disabsorb these verses. The words were found. We found some words, didn't we? Now let's eat them. And these words will become the gladness and joy of our heart. Well, until we meet again, in one way or another, may I say, the Lord bless you, all of you, in every way, in everything, in every place, and at every time until we all are together in the Lord, hopefully in the wedding feast and in the coming kingdom. Again I say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Bye for now.